0: You know, the greatest celebration of Easter, Easter is all about Christ being resurrected, new life. And and that's such a great celebration. The celebration of Easter that I love the most is seeing Christ's life in his church, in his people. And so let, let, let's rejoice in that today. Let's celebrate that today. That because of what he did, because he rose again, now he brought new life to us. And so we can rejoice uh, in that together and celebrate that. Um, listen, one of the things that I love about this church is there are little kids running around everywhere and making tons of noise and babies crying and that is a symbol of new life and and it's a reminder to us of what Christ does for us that when when he died on the cross, that he didn't stay dead, but that he came to life, that he resurrected on that incredible day. And that's what we're celebrating today. There are so many reminders of that. Um, I believe that spring is coming. <laughs> Listen, in Minnesota, sometimes there's a doubt in my mind, but like I think that green grass will be um, will come again. That that the flowers will start to come out of the ground again. And that that reminder of new life this time of year. Easter is a special day. It's a special day for us as believers. Um, you know, it's, it's a big day for pastors, in case you didn't know this. Like, we get excited about Easter because um, it's kind of like the one day of the year where everybody's as excited as you are <laughs> about church. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, there was a, there's a story about a pastor. Um, in fact, on Easter, a pastor and a taxi driver both died and went to heaven. And Peter was at the, the pearly gates waiting for them, and he said, come with me, uh, and, and he took them and, and led them along this path, and, and first they stopped, and the taxi driver did as he was told, followed Peter to this incredible mansion. It had everything that you could imagine, beautiful gardens, a bowling alley, a basketball court, an Olympic-sized pool with fountains in the middle of it, and uh, he said, oh my word, thank you, Uh, The taxi driver was just blown away uh, and impressed by this. So then next, St. Peter says, Okay, now to the pastor, we're going to take you to your house. And, And they take him through into kind of a rough neighborhood and looking a little bit grimy and dingy to this old shack with a bunk bed and a little old television set. And the pastor's like, Hey, wait a second, what's going on here? I think you got a little mixed up. Shouldn't I be the one getting the mansion? After all, I was a pastor, and I went to church every single day and preached God's word. Yes, that's true, Peter said, but during your Easter sermons, people slept. When the taxi driver drove, everyone prayed. Well, listen, if we take something as incredible as the resurrection story and turn it into something boring, shame on us. This is the most incredible day in history. It's because of what Christ did on that cross that we have hope, that we have life. It's the reason why we're singing worship songs this morning and celebrating his goodness. It's because of what he did in rising again that we have reason to celebrate. Listen, I'm rejoicing in the fact that we have such an amazing worship team to lead us. Uh, I <laughs> and I mean everybody, all our volunteers, all our all our team's back there with the kids this morning. Our kids are running around finding Easter eggs this morning. They're going to have a great time at church this morning. And you know what? We should have a great time at church because Easter is a celebration of our God and our Savior and what he did, not only in giving his life on the cross, but rising again. Now, there are um, a lot of different explanations that people will try to use to, to justify what happened Uh, instead of Christ actually rising from the dead, because, uh, you know, that is impossible. That couldn't have possibly happened the way that Scripture says it did. And so there has to be a logical explanation for why this happened. And there are a bunch of different theories. And in fact, many of uh, the authors of these theories have, have written books and sold hundreds of thousands of copies Um, In fact, Mark Twain said it this way, a lie can make it halfway around the world while the truth is still lacing up its boots. And you know, that's the reality. We want to believe something so badly that that we give credence to something even though the most logical and the simplest explanation is the truth, that Jesus did what he said he did. Let me just give you some of the the different theories that that people have believed over the years. Um, One of them... Is that the disciples had a hallucin- hallucination that they must have had some bad Taco Bell combined with the stress of everything that was going on at that time with Jesus dying on the cross, and so they just imagined that that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, um, there's a few problems with that theory. First of all, uh, hallucinations are not something that happen collectively. All right, if you have a hallucination, it's inside your head, and usually it doesn't you. The group of people, they don't have the same hallucination. Okay, so that theory is kind of stupid, but actually that's the best one. <laughs> um, some people believe that there was a fake resurrection, that the disciples stole his body. And we'll actually talk about that one because Matthew actually addresses that theory. But can I ask just, just a logical question here? If they planned this whole thing and orchestrated this whole thing, they stole his body in the middle of the night somehow, which, it, frankly, it's impossible, but we'll get to that later. Right? Just imagine they did that. Now, history tells us that all except for John were martyred because of their faith, that they died. In fact, Peter even died on a cross just like Jesus, except he was hung upside down. Why would these men go through that for something that they knew was a hoax. I mean, at some point, don't you think they would be like, hey, you know what? It's, it's been a good run. <laughs> we, we've had people believe in this for a long time, but it's not worth dying over, right? Why would they give their lives if they orchestrated this whole thing? Uh, here's another one. Some people feel that Jesus, under the stress of being hung on a cross, Merely fainted while he was up there, and that when they took him down and, and laid him in the tomb, somehow they missed the fact that he was still breathing this whole time. And so in this cold, damp tomb, he miraculously recovered well, not miraculously, because it's not a mir- we can't acknowledge that there was a miracle. but he somehow recovered in this tomb that he gained enough strength without eating for several days. To roll away a four thousand pound rock that was sitting outside uh, this tomb and and escape, that he never really died on the cross. Now, it, I mean, it's it's right. These things, these theories, are ridiculous. Okay, so you kind of have to come to the the point of acknowledging the fact that either Jesus did what Scripture says he did and that he rose from the dead, or that. All of this historical information that talks about Christ and his resurrection and the 500 people that witnessed him after his resurrection and talked with him and saw him, you have to acknowledge that that was all a vast conspiracy theory. Like This is what scripture gives us. It's this beautiful picture. It's backed by evidence. There's, there's a, a man named Lee Strobel he set out to disprove the resurrection. That was his plan. He was a journalist, and so he started doing his research. He went through all these different historical records. He studied with the, with the explicit intent of disproving Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And after all his research and after all his study, he finally came to the conclusion, you know what? I was the one that had it wrong. In fact, he wrote a book called The Case for Christ. It's one of the best-selling books of all time. It examines the history and the, the facts behind Jesus' death and his resurrection. And so today, we can look at Scripture and read what's being said with confidence, believing that it's true, that it's supported by history. And so we're going to look at what Scripture actually says this morning. And we've been in a series in the book of Matthew. And if you're just joining us today, you made it just in time for the end. Um, But we're in Matthew chapter 27 and 28 today. And just on Friday, we we read through the story of Christ being hung on the cross and giving up his last breath. And and doing this so that we could be redeemed. He was the sacrifice of on our behalf. And so we're going to pick it up in Matthew chapter 27, verse 57. We're going to read just the end of this chapter, and then we'll read chapter, the beginning of chapter 28 as well. It says, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was a disciple of Jesus. And he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in clean, a clean linen shroud and laid it on his own new tomb, which he had cut into the rock. And he rolled a great stro- stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. All right, so first of all, the two Marys. We have Mary Magdalene, and the other Mary, and and the natural assumption would be, oh, that's Mary, the mother of Jesus. No, it's actually a different Mary. This is Mary, the mother of James, not James and John James, but the other James. He's known uh, kind of affectionately as James the Less, because he's less talked about than the other disciple. Who would want that for a name? Paul the Less. I'll go with that. You can call me whatever you want. Um, But so... There's a lot of Marys, all right? It gets complicated, but this was Mary, the mother of James the Less and Mary Magdalene. Um, And so they're sitting there opposite the tomb. But let's talk about the other character in what we just read, Joseph of Arimathea. Scripture tells us not a whole lot about him. It says that he was a rich man, so we know that about him. It also says uh, in the Gospel of John that he was a secret disciple. So generally, people who were rich were also people of influence, and so Joseph of Arimathea was probably a pretty prominent figure. He was well-known and well-respected, and so he was a disciple of Jesus, but being a disciple of Jesus had its drawbacks, okay? Uh, he, He had just been crucified on a cross. His disciples all ran away. So the fact that he was secretly following Christ is probably not a shocker, okay, And you can maybe criticize him for his shame in following Jesus Christ, but he did something incredibly bold that we just read here. He gave his brand new tomb to Jesus. Now you might think, well, brand new tomb, what's the difference between an old tomb and a new tomb? Um, So the way that, that these tombs would work is that they would be the burial site for a family. So when someone would die, the first person would be laid to rest in this tomb. There were two different areas. There was an area for preparation, and there was an area where they laid you to rest. And eventually, over time, your body exposed to the air and the elements in that tomb would decompose, and you would become a pile of bones. And so they would take those bones, and they would put them in a little box, and they'd shove them in the back of the tomb so that that little podium could be used for the next relative who passed away. And they would recycle this tomb and use it over and over again. It was very rare that a new tomb would be cut because you had to be extremely wealthy to, to coordinate such a project, right? Digging into rock without modern equipment that we have today required a lot of chisel work. It required a lot of labor. So not only did you have to own the property, but you had to be able to pay the people to cut this tomb. And so Joseph, probably planning for his future wanted to be laid in this brand new tomb and he had this available and his friends would have known about it and his friends would have known where it was. And the fact that he gave it to Jesus was a huge statement. He was making an incredible statement about what he believed and he was putting his neck on the line in that instance. remember a a while back we, we talked about a passage where Jesus said it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to get into heaven. Well, apparently it's possible, all right? Because Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man and a disciple. So Jesus' point wasn't that it's impossible. He's like, it, you know what? There's going to be a lot of other temptations that you have to work through. And it's possible to serve the Lord and to be committed to him even uh, when there are other temptations present as well. Joseph of Arimathea was proof of that. He was bold in this instance, and he was honored because he was recorded in Scripture as the one who gave Jesus his tomb. All right, we talked about the two Marys, and, and now Matthew is the only one in, in his account. The, the story of the resurrection is in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But Matthew is the only one who records the account of how Jesus' enemies react to his death. And uh, he actually talks about them a lot. We're going to read through that in just a second here. But um, Matthew spends a fair amount of time talking about the schemes of the religious leaders, and it suggests that he probably has a source inside that group. Maybe it was Nicodemus, if you remember Nicodemus, the story of, of this well-respected Pharisee that had this conversation with Jesus in the middle of the night in John chapter 3 where he was told what it meant to be born again um, and was probably doing secretly because he was worried about the ramifications of meeting with Jesus. Verse 62, it says this, The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. And said, sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he's still alive, after three days, I will rise. Now, I want to stop there and point something out. We have been studying through the book of Matthew and Jesus talking to his disciples. And over and over and over again, Jesus says, hey, I'm going to die. I'm going to go to die, but in three days, I'm going to rise again. And you know what the disciples did every time he did that? Went just right over their head. I mean, completely missed it altogether. Like, no idea that, they're like, but Jesus, you're going to die. You can't die. We won't let you do that. Jesus like, okay, but you're missing the part about me rising again. You know, it's, it's hilarious to me that Jesus' disciples didn't even acknowledge the fact that he said that. But Jesus' enemies remembered in that instance that he said it, and they were worried about it. And so they, in verse 64, they're like, therefore, order that the tomb be made secure until the third day. They're like, listen, even if this guy rises from the dead, he's not getting out of that tomb. We are going to lock it down, right? So therefore, order the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead. Now, I know they're saying we're worried about the disciples tricking everybody but in reality i think they were worried that he was going to rise from the dead they wanted to lock him in there (laughs) so uh unless they they tell the people he's risen from the dead and that the last fraud will be worse than the first Pilate said to them fine take some soldiers go and make it as secure as you can all right. So what would have happened? Um, now, I have actually been to one of these tombs. In fact, there's some thought that this might have been the tomb that, that Jesus was laid to rest in. We don't know for sure, but it, it would have been a tomb like this. And it, it's ultimately a hole cut into the rock that's about maybe three to four feet high. So you gotta you got to crawl in there to get in there. And then once you're inside, you can stand up and there's a little table and a room divider and then another room next to it. And um, so in order to secure these tombs, they would roll a, a big rock. And, and the average size rock that would be rolled in front of these tombs is about 4,000 pounds. You may think, well, how did they do that? They didn't have a crane. Um, they would actually have a bunch of Romans with their uh, with wood levers, and they would use leverage to push this gigantic rock in front of this tomb. The idea was to make it difficult, right? They didn't want people going in people's tombs and hiding in there. They didn't want a place for criminals to go. They had to make it inaccessible to one person. And so they made it as secure as they could. And then um, on top of that, they sealed the tomb. And what they would do to seal the tomb is they would make a paste, essentially, out of clay. And they would put that clay over the, the overlap between the actual tomb and the rock so that there would be a seal and then everyone could see if it had been tampered with. Because the penalty for tampering with a tomb was a very severe penalty and so that would ensure that everyone would see that nothing had come out of there. And so what they did essentially is give us evidence that one of the claims that the disciples stole his body couldn't have possibly happened. There was no way for them to get in there and steal his body. There were Roman guards standing outside. The tomb was sealed. The rock was too heavy to move without instruments. There was no way that they could secretly get in there and steal his body. And So Matthew 27, 66 says, So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now we get to the good part. See, Jesus' enemies, at that point, we're thinking, we've got this thing covered. We have it handled. Then chapter 28 happens. Let's read it together. It says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, again, Mary, mother of James, went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord had descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. That's awesome, right? <laughs> I just love that picture. Like, here's the, the Roman guard, and now here's this angel who single-handedly rolls this gigantic stone out of the way and is sitting on top of it. He's like, what are you going to do, boys? <laughs> oh, I love it. It says, his appearance was like lightning. And his clothing was white as snow. You want to talk about an Easter outfit. All right, this angel was uh, dripping. All right. (laughs) And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here For he has risen as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. <laughs> now, okay, just picture this for a second. Here come these two women. They're already, like, messed up because they just saw this incredible angel roll away this rock. They walked in the tomb. It's empty. The linens are just laying there in the tomb. And they're on their way home, and here's this guy who's supposed to be dead, and he's like, hi. <laughs> Good to see. You. Good morning. Happy Easter, right? I mean, they're just out of their minds right now. They're like, "Can you believe what we're witnessing? What we're seeing?" In fact, we read in one of the other accounts that they didn't recognize him at first. That they saw him, and they're like, "How's it going?" They thought he was just a gardener. Like, "Oh, what are you doing? Hi, nice, nice to meet you." So. Obviously, something was different about Jesus, that that his resurrected body looked a little bit different than than what he did prior to being crucified. And it wasn't until he spoke the word Mary and he said her name that she knew it was him. What an incredible moment that must have been. You know, I... Jesus' resurrection is a model for what Christ does for us. In fact, Paul uses some of that same language that, uh, that we use when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus. In, in 1 Corinthians, he tells us that we're a new creation in Christ Jesus, that the old has gone away and the new has come, that when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, that He doesn't um, just give you a pass, a ticket that gets into heaven, but that you die to your old self, that you're being made alive in Christ. And that not only is your spirit made righteous before God, that now he sees Christ's righteousness in you, but that your human self is being shaped and molded and sanctified in this incredible process that he takes us and makes us a new person. A few things about resurrected people that we learn from the model of Christ. First of all, resurrected people walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus came out of that tomb, it was a demonstration of power. Right? That rock didn't just roll itself away. Right, There was an earthquake. There was an angel. Like, there was this incredible event. And he left in power, and a demonstration of power. And as a believer today, we can walk with a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. We are not bound by the rules of physics even in, in some ways. We have the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us. So when we pray for somebody, we can believe that God can, can heal them, can change them. We, there's power in the words that we speak Because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. When's the last time you asked for God to do something supernatural? Believed that that he would accomplish that. Listen, the women walked to the tomb with no plan how to get in. Right? They they were going to prepare Jesus' body and and anoint him and do all this stuff. They probably didn't think through that process. Right? Right? Because there's a big rock in front of the tomb and it's sealed, and there's a Roman guard. How are they going to get in there? What are they going to do? Are these two ladies going to push this 4,000 pound rock out of the way? No, not. Come on. But they went anyway. You know why? Because love causes us to do irrational things. And our love for Christ should cause you to do some things that don't make sense. Maybe He'll give you the words to say in a moment. Maybe it's praying for someone who's sick and believing that God can heal them. Maybe it's um, going into a situation that you haven't figured out how it's going to work yet, but you're trusting God because you believe that he's called you to do that. That's what the power of a resurrected person walks in. Um, Second thing is resurrected people look different. I mentioned this already. They didn't recognize Jesus there's something different about his appearance. In fact, when he showed himself to the, to the disciples a few weeks later, showed Thomas his hands and said, Hey, here you go. Here's the scars. Here's proof that I am who I am. Right? In the same way, your life should look different than it did when you came to Christ. If, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior and you're now a new creation, shouldn't that reflect in the way that you live Shouldn't people recognize that there's something different about you? You know, I think sometimes we as Christians walk around with the same level of hopelessness and despair that everybody else in the world walks around with. Like, we're so upset about what's happening with with different countries around the world, with politics, with everything that's going on, there's no hope inside of us. So the world sees that and they're like, listen, you don't have anything different than I have. And, And listen... This isn't a guilt trip. This is a reminder that your life is different. That you don't have to be subject to the same things that the world is subject to. That the fears and the anxiety and and the worries of this world are temporary. Because our hope isn't in this world. It doesn't mean that you don't have stress. It doesn't mean that you're not going to go through hardship. It doesn't mean that at some times you're you're not going to deal with sickness and frustration and things that don't go your way. In fact, Jesus promises us that there is going to be hardship. So don't feel bad if you're going through a hard time. But listen, remember that our life isn't here. That our hope is eternity. And we are resurrected by Christ and what he's done. And so we don't have to be... Completely destroyed by the circumstances and the frustrations in our life. We can walk in freedom. We can walk in victory. And sometimes we need that reminder. Sometimes we need um, that, that truth to, to be um, present in our mind. We need to meditate on that and think about that, that reality. So that the lies that the world wants to tell us, the lies that the enemy wants to tell us, don't control us. They don't manipulate us. And that brings me to my third thing. Resurrected people aren't controlled by fear. They're not controlled by fear. In fact, the instruction is given over and over again. What did the angel say to the two ladies when they came to the tomb? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. When Jesus appeared to his disciples, don't be afraid. You hear this over and over and over and over again. Because resurrected people have nothing to be afraid of, right? The world can throw its worst at you. It can even take your life, but it can't take your spirit because what is inside of us is not temporary. It's not what the world is living for anymore. It's life for all eternity because of what Christ has done. So I want to just take a second and and look at the instruction that these two women were given. The first instruction was come and see, right? Come and see, hey, don't be afraid, come in, take a look, see that he's no longer here, right? That's God's invitation to all of us as well. Taste and see that the Lord is good, right? Maybe somebody invited you to church today and they said, hey, we want you to come and see what God has done in my life. Maybe you gave your life to Christ 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago, right? And and at some point, you came and saw what it meant to have a relationship with God. And it changed you and something inside happened. Then he didn't leave it there, the instructions that Jesus gave to the two women, where now that you've come and, and seen, go and tell. Go and tell, right? That's, that's the instruction that's given to every believer. That it's, it's not just come and, and enjoy the fact that, of what Christ has called us to, but go and tell the world of that hope, of that goodness, of that faithfulness. Jesus' resurrection gives us the ability not only to enjoy what he's done, but to share that hope with others as well. One last thing I want to share this morning before we close. Let's keep reading in in verse 11. We're going to go back to the, the religious leaders. It says, While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. All right, they're, they're past the point of trying to rationally cover this up. They've moved to straight bribing, okay? And here's what, he, what they said to them. Tell people his disciples came by night. And stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, now this is why this is important right now. The penalty for a Roman soldier who falls asleep on the job, they're done. Right? So they're like, listen, we'll talk to your bosses, we'll explain to them what happened. But you tell people his disciples came and stole his body while you were sleeping. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. You know, people still believe that to this day. 2,000 years later, because they can't believe in something so simple as the reality that Christ rose from the dead. Every once in a while, you'll hear some famous pastor that no longer believes in the resurrection or no longer believes in the virgin birth and is failing to acknowledge anything supernatural happens anymore. You know, that's the problem when we place our faith in human beings, right? We're stupid and eventually we're gonna make mistakes. There's going to be failures. There's going to be shortcomings. But I have chosen to place my faith in a God who never fails, who never disappoints. That he came to this earth, that he lived a sinless life, that he offered himself as a sacrifice for us died on a cross that he willingly gave up his life and he was laid to rest in a tomb Conspiracy you want to believe. But I think there's way too much evidence. I think there are way too many coincidences that you have to walk over to simply ignore the truth of the resurrected Jesus. So as long as I have breath, long as God gives me time on this earth I'm going to proclaim a special day because we celebrate this resurrection but if if this resurrection is just something that we acknowledge as a great story and it doesn't move us and it doesn't change us and it doesn't call us to relationship with God then it didn't really serve its purpose you know as Jesus hung on the cross says that the veil in the temple, this would be a curtain that would be layers and layers thick. It would probably be six inches thick. It says that while he was on the cross, the ground shook and the curtain of the temple was ripped from top to bottom. God was doing something in that moment. He was communicating to us that the barrier has been removed. That because of Jesus' death on the cross, that now it wasn't just the priests once a year who could enter into the presence of God to offer a sacrifice. That now we, as normal people, have access to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That God wants to be in relationship with us. And Jesus' resurrection Is a reminder of that truth that his invitation to us still stands to this day come and see come and see the empty tomb now we can't literally see the empty tomb in this moment we don't even know where it is but I do know this it's empty he is risen He's calling us to life as well. And Because of what I've seen, because of what Christ has done in my life, I'm responding to the challenge to go and tell. That because of what Jesus has done for me, I have to tell everyone morning, you're hearing this message and something is changing inside of you. You just have a sense that, that you need to take that step and place your faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, the veil is gone. The separation is gone. God is inviting you into relationship with him. He wants you to experience everything that he has for you. That's you today and you'd like to make that step with every head bowed and every eye closed. Nobody's looking around. This is just a simple acknowledgement that I need Jesus. Would you just slip up a hand real quick so that I can pray with you this morning. today, as as, um, those of you who made that decision to surrender your heart, to live your life for Christ, and we're going to say this prayer together as a church, so would you just repeat after me? Jesus, I need you. I need your love. I need your forgiveness. promise of the hope that comes through Jesus Christ. Today, I invite Jesus into my life. days of my life. Scripture tells us that when one person makes that decision, that all of heaven celebrates. And this morning in churches all around the world, people are making that commitment and that decision that we are celebrating this moment together, that thousands and thousands of people this morning have made that decision with me. person here who's already made that commitment, who's already made that decision to follow Jesus, who surrendered your life to him, today is a continual celebration of what he's done. And we are rejoicing together in the goodness and in the faithfulness of God.